This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com masters. Hey entrepreneurs, my name is Felix and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Ahmed Iqbal explained how you built a $100,000 business by picking up the phone and calling cart abandoners. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that uses the power of video to educate their customers. In this episode, you'll learn why it's okay to do things that aren't scalable at first, why you should create a video if you're selling a unique product, and why success on Kickstarter can be a double-edged sword. Today, I'm joined by Tyler Hanley from Inkbox.com. It's I-N-K-B-O-X.com. Inkbox is the world's first tattoo that lasts two weeks, made from an organic fruit-based formula, and was started in 2015 and based out of Toronto. Welcome, Tyler. Hey Felix, thanks for having me on. Yeah, excited to have you on. So yeah, tell us a bit more about the uh, the store and what, what are the actual products that you sell? Um, the product itself, as you said, first two week tattoo. It's applied kind of like a traditional temporary tattoo, the kind you had as a kid, uh, but it's much more surgical grade and it lasts the full two weeks because we're not putting something on top of your skin like a sticker or something like that. Uh, we're actually sinking a formula into the epidermis, the top layer of skin. And over the course of 24 to 36 hours, it's actually changing the color of your skin, kind of like how a Polaroid develops. And it lasts a couple of weeks because it's actually locked into your skin. Um, in fact, it's actually effectively changing the color of your skin. Um, and it just sloughs off as the skin regenerates every couple of weeks. Hmm, very cool. So how did you learn about this kind, of, this kind of technology for this kind of product? Did you have experience in this space? Uh, not necessarily. It was something we wanted um, I had worked at e-com before. Um, my brother, who I founded the company with, uh, had, has always been an entrepreneur, and I, I had a previous start before this as well. Uh, but the inspiration really came from wanting um, the look and feel of a, of a real tattoo without the lifelong commitment. And there just didn't seem to be an option for that. I had uh, been a freelance designer on the side for 15 years, quite a while, and I had a lot of designs that I had made that I wanted to wear as tattoos, but they were quite trendy and, and things I knew that, you know, in 10 years, they'd be like the Tweety Bird tattoo that all <laughs> middle-aged women have, like that kind of um, design. So I, I kind of set out looking for um, a, a solution. Uh, my brother and I ended up coming across these, these tribes in the jungles of Panama who uh, have been using this fruit uh, for thousands of years to paint their bodies with. Uh, and it turns out that there's a molecule in this fruit that's uh, very effective at um, changing the color of the skin. Um, so so we, we took this fruit and uh, worked with these tribes, actually, which is another story. I won't get into that now. But uh, work with these tribes um, and then use the basis of that fruit to develop a completely new type of, of, of tattoo. Mm, very cool. So you mentioned that you already had experience in the past running e-commerce businesses. Were you running a business at the same time that you launched the Inkbox? Yeah, I had a previous startup that I was running uh, as we launched the e-commerce store. Uh, so my brother quit his job uh, in February 2015 and gave himself three months to get it off the ground and start making money. Uh, and I had a previous startup um, and it was kind of dwindling down and I knew the end was in sight. Um, so I, I said, yeah, Bray, um, my brother's name is Braden. So I, I told him, yeah, just 
take this on, um, get this, the shop set up, start the business, and you know, a couple months I'll join. And that's exactly what happened. So. Mm, very cool. So you both had things going on, at least uh, maybe just before launching the business or kind of like winding down, like you're saying. How did you figure out how to devote your time between you know, two things, even though, like you're saying, you saw the end was near for your previous business, whatever you're working on prior. Uh, but I'm sure it still de- 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 required some of your time and maybe some of your mental kind of energy as well. How did you kind of balance the two things, you know, running a, a business previously and then also try and get another one off the ground? Uh, well, having run a business previously, you make a lot of mistakes. Uh, not necessarily mistakes, but you, you do learn a lot. Uh, you make mistakes and then learn a lot in the process mm-hmm. uh, and, and meet the right people. So I, I had a, enough experience at that point that uh, everything was quicker the second time around. Um, so starting Inkbox was, I mean, we did what we did in three months what would have taken, I think, someone for the first time doing something like eight to 12 months. Uh, so, so we, and one of the main things was just hustling was, uh, it's not even a matter of devoting, um, you know, separating time. It's just working all hours essentially. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I think this is uh, important. I think you have a, a special kind of, um, I guess, perspective on this then, because like you're saying, you already launched business in the past and you learn things that, uh, basically, uh, took 25% of the time that it took previously for your past businesses. What do you think, um, that you and maybe other entrepreneurs waste a lot of time on in the first year of being in business? I say planning. Uh, we didn't write a business plan. Uh, you know, we had ideas in our heads um, uh, about how to go about things. Um, but it's really just getting the product in people's hands. I think a lot of people focus on the name and the logo and, and the brand and creating this kind of broad vision before you even know if people want the basic product that you're going to sell them. So uh, I remember when we were sitting in, a, in, Excel, in, a, in an accelerator here in Toronto, there was another company that sat near us that was creating a, a bag or something. And they spent, I think they spent like five to $10,000 um, with a consultant to try to get the name right. Wow. And they didn't even know people were, if people were going to buy that bag or not. And here we were, um, you know, we did everything ourselves. I think we paid like $100 for our logo design because um, we kind of half did it ourselves too. Um, and then did almost everything ourselves. And, uh, you know, I guess not everyone can do that, but if you have a, a decent grasp on culture and, and um, you know, just what would be a popular product. I mean, you can kind of just go at it yourself and, and, and hustle and, um, you know, not have to focus on that kind of stuff right at the beginning, but develop it as um, you learn from your customers. I think a lot of our brand was actually defined by our early audience and our early customers. Um, so we kind of evolve with the audience. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, so it sounds like you got the product out to customers as soon as possible, try to validate it as quickly as possible rather than just kind of conjecture and think about what might work, might, what might not work. So how does this actually play on a day-to-day basis? Like how did you, I guess, walk us through this process? How did you get the, the initial products made and how did you get them out to customers? Uh, we had an initial version of the product that was, quite literally a fruit extract we um, imported directly from the jungles of Panama. And it was a messy product. It had to be refrigerated. We ordered initial stuff off Alibaba, um, just did it as, as you know, quick as possible. Um, you know, standard bottles, put this ink in those bottles, did it all by hand, uh, ordered stuff off of uh, Uline for, for shipping, um, and then used Shippo 
uh, through Shopify. Yeah, it, that just allowed us to, to easily get it off the ground. And that initial product uh, was not scalable. I think it was something that um, it took a lot of time to, to mix it all together and bottle it and package it. And we had to even refrigerate it and freeze it before it was shipped. So uh, it was quite a cumbersome process. And it wasn't scalable. And that's actually why we developed the, the, the new version of the product, which is, which is much different. Uh, and it's a much more scalable product. Yeah, I like that approach of not being afraid to try something that's not scalable just to kind of get you to the next stage. I think a concern that entrepreneurs have, though, is that they wonder, can they ever make it scalable after that? Because they're not, you know, you're not spending time trying to figure out if it can be scalable, if you're just trying to get something out there. Like you're saying, it sounded like a very manual process. Did you guys know that it would be scalable at some time in the future? Or you kind of were just hoping to figure that out later? Figured it out. I mean, we knew the concept was scalable. We knew people would buy it. I think our early traction showed that. Um, and early traction on a product, uh, we weren't even very content with. I mean, we didn't really like the initial product. It was cool, but uh, it just it didn't work as well as we wanted it to. And I think it depends what you actually want to do with the company. I mean, we knew from early traction that if we developed an even better product, a product that was from a manufacturing standpoint scalable uh, and we built you know, a, the, the right company, we could you know, turn into a, a proper high growth startup and, and not a lifestyle brand, if that makes any sense. I think um, a lot of people start Shopify stores and it's just going to be a side gig or a side hustle or maybe a full-time gig for them and a couple people. Uh, and that's a lifestyle business. It's not super high growth, but you make a living, you, make a, you can make a good living. Um, but we knew early on that uh, just the initial traction that, that we saw and just the in general concept of what we were doing uh, was amenable to being a high growth startup. Mm. What did you recognize in it? I mean, you don't give us away all your secrets, but like how do you, if someone out there is trying to figure out what products to sell, what kind of business to start, are there kind of uh, you know, telltale signs that a business can be scalable and not just be a, a lifestyle business, won't just be just a small business if they are aspiring to become a much larger company? Uh, I think in the e-commerce space, there's only two ways companies uh, get that high growth, mainly. I mean, there's exceptions, of course, but... Uh, for the most part, it's companies that have a very unique product, uh, and, and we're in that category. Um, it's completely new. It hasn't existed before. It's in a market that hasn't really had any innovation in, in, in generations. So there's that side of things, but then you have the other side, which is business model. So you've seen companies like uh, <clears throat> Birchbox define the subscription box model, um, and, and they had high growth because you know they defined an entirely new way to sell products and, mm. and Dollar Shave Club is another example of that. Um, <clears throat> and then I think Honest Company is a company that probably sits in the middle of those two. Um, so they to develop unique products, but they are in a more competitive space. You had a product early on for beta testing. You weren't 100% happy with it, uh, but you know, like you said, it was cool. Uh, how did you know it was good enough to get going? Because I think there's another stage I think a lot of entrepreneurs hang around at too long, which is that they wait for it to be perfect, to be exactly what they, they envisioned as the final form of the product. But you guys went ahead anyway with something that, like you're saying, you weren't 100% happy with. Yeah, but how did you know that was good enough to get going? Um, just wearing it ourselves and having friends try it and not just friends but just a larger startup community we were part of an accelerator and about 80 different companies in there so there were a lot of people to test drive the the product and, and we had a bunch of people use it and love it 
obviously the the downside of the product um, was that it was it was difficult to apply, uh, took a long time to apply, was quite messy, uh, didn't get the clean lines we wanted. Uh, but we knew that those were things that we could work on and at least partially uh, resolve. We had done enough research to know that we could partially resolve at least some of those problems. Um, and even even with those problems, people were super excited about the concept, even though they kind of had bad applications <laughs> at yeah. the start. They saw its potential. So, you know, they saw the potential. We saw the potential. Yeah. You know, it's, just hearing you talk, it sounds like you, I'm not sure if you did a ton of research to know that all of these problems could be resolved or did you just move ahead anyway because you, I don't guess knew yourself, knew your company that you guys could figure it out. Again, I think there's another stage a lot of entrepreneurs hang around in, which is that they want to be able to see everything from beginning to end. Did you, were you in that, were you in that kind of camp too, where you had to see everything from beginning to end or like how much did you know about uh, the possibilities of the product before you even got started or do you, are you comfortable getting started without knowing that? Uh, as an entrepreneur, I'd say you're never going to have perfect knowledge of something. I think that's kind of inherent in being an entrepreneur, that there's this risk and that risk comes from uh, having imperfect knowledge. Uh, so you just have to be comfortable with that imperfect knowledge. I mean, worst case scenario, I mean, it's a, e-commerce is, it's not as risky because you are making money uh, if you have a product that has decent margins. So, uh, you know, worst case scenario, we don't make a lot of money and it's just something fun we did for a while. Um, so you just got to be comfortable with that risk and, uh, yeah, just kind of carry forward with it. Mm, yeah, definitely. So you mentioned uh, as well earlier about how you fall into this uh, camp of a innovative product, a product that has never been seen before. And, you know, it kind of requires low education, right? Like you were saying, a lot of people are familiar with these kind of, uh, you know, th- uh, I guess tattoos, temporary tattoos that you find in a machine where you print it out and put it on yourself, but yours is di- different than that. There's some more, I guess, kind of technology that's a little bit different than than what you would find just a, you know putting a quarter into a machine to get a, uh, a temporary tattoo. Um, so it requires some education. How do you overcome this when you have a product that's innovative, people don't understand, and they might even relate it to the wrong type of product? Uh, so how do you overcome this issue? Uh, so think we're figuring it out. It's a double-sided sword with an innovative product because on the one hand, uh, there's a greater, what's called a blue ocean in front of you. I mean, you don't have competitors in this space, so you have a lot of room to land grab and grow. Uh, and if you can protect yourself with patents that are defendable, then that's even better. Uh, but the other side, yeah, you have to educate people on what it is. Uh, and it, it, it's been really interesting to look at our, our bounce rates um, and that's kind of our metric for education, um, seeing if people are sticking around and reading about it. So uh, it took us a while to figure out what converted people. Um, and and, and I think the best thing for us was video, uh, just showing it being applied because it's a quite a unique application process uh, has, has really helped us boost our conversions and sales. Mm, okay. So how does this bounce rate come in? Like, Are you saying that people come to the site and you're seeing if people are leaving because they don't understand the product? How do you interpret the bounce rate in your case? Yeah. If, if we had a bounce rate uh, you know, above, hmm, let's say I think it was above, at one point it was above 55%, 60%. Um, and we didn't have a video on the site. The application process wasn't quite clear. Uh, and, and once we added that video, you could see that bounce rate gradually drop down into like, you know, 30s, low 40s. 
Mm, makes sense. Cool. So, um, that, with that initial run again that you had and you were testing out with, uh, you know, people that you knew offline, uh, were you asking specific questions or like how did you figure out if they were actually interested in a product or not? You know, because it, especially when you are an entrepreneur and you're giving out free products for people to try, you know, a lot of people were kind of be polite, right? And they'll give you, tell you things and they kind of sugarcoat a lot of their feedback. Did you do anything to make sure that you were getting the raw kind of honest feedback that you needed to to uh, to guide you? Yeah, um, I mean, we got that raw feedback from uh, on the product and what people thought of it, obviously from uh, the community around us. But online, and you know, for people we didn't know, uh, our strategy was to create some hype about it beforehand. Uh, so what we did was create an Instagram account and. A couple of our early um, shots were just like friends and family, and we'd post them and say, you know, world's first two-week tattoo. Um, I think actually our tag in the, in the beginning was natural fruit-based tattoos that last 12 to 15 days, or something a bit more verbose like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just built initial hype. I think we got a couple hundred followers just using hashtags and, you know, hashtags for tattoos and, and temporary tattoos and, and lifestyle tags. Uh, got a couple hundred followers, uh, built up some hype, and then when we launched the product on our first day, I think we got like four hundred dollars in sales, and they all came from Instagram. Oh wow! And the first one was from Amsterdam, and we're in Toronto, so it's kind of cool to see someone just in a completely different country speaks a different language, although she does she speaks English, but uh, purchase our tattoos. And you know, the first day we're like, okay, this is cool. Like, people are actually actually wanting this. Um, and in in terms of of price, uh, it was interesting for us because. Again, it's a new product that didn't exist before. We wanted to price it high enough to differentiate ourselves from um, temporary tattoos, uh, and and uh, you know, low enough that it's an impulse buy. That you know, you can see and be like, "This is cool. I want this right now." And then you wouldn't really feel bad about spending the money. So, um, in in, retro, in retrospect, I think it would have been cool to use uh, what is it? I think Van Westendorp's price sensitivity meter, uh, which is kind of an interesting model on kind of asking users or customers a couple questions and getting um, that feedback and using that to draw a a demand curve, essentially, to see where the optimum price point is. Uh, I think we would have done that if we we did another product, but uh, for us, it was was mostly just what we would pay for it, like just kind of gut-checking it ourselves. Mm, I, I like this approach that I don't think I've heard too many people talk about it, which is your pricing to differentiate yourself from the other kind of temporary tattoos out there. Can you, can you speak about this a little bit more? Like, how did you, I guess, know to do this and how much of a difference did it make? Well, I would say it made a huge difference. I mean, it, we're defining a market and in, in defining a market, you know, we have to define the price too and, and what the kind of average price for a product like this should be. So, uh, we wanted to make it clear that this wasn't what you thought it was. Um, like if you initially just saw like temporary tattoo or something, which we don't market ourselves as at all. Um, but you would, you would think that it's the thing you get for $5 and you get like a couple of them on a sheet and you stick it on your skin the last couple of days. Uh, we were very cognizant not to, uh, give off that brand image uh, I think there's a brand image of temporary tattoos as being kind of cheap, and there's been a couple companies that have done really well in in uh, in overcoming that that cheapness by really focusing on artists and, and using really cool art. Um, but 
we had a technology, so uh, it had to be quite a bit different than anything in existence. Uh, and I think, I think people, you, you pay more for technology, obviously, because it takes a lot more money to uh, create that technology. So um, kind of taking all into account, it, it made sense to make it the price point it is now. Mm, yeah, I, I think that all makes sense. Uh, so you mentioned that you uh, first built up the hype for the for the product even before you guys launched by building an audience on Instagram first. I think that's that's awesome because you kind of get a feel for for interest that way as well. Did you have a hundred percent complete product at that time, or were you still kind of iterating through it when you while you were building this audience? Yeah, it was complete enough. Uh, we weren't ready to start selling it yet, but uh, in testing, it was complete. I think mainly we were just. Uh, Sorting out shipping, figuring out how to ship properly, and 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 the packaging, and just the little things like that before we launched. Mm, yeah, because I wonder, you know, if you do launch, if you do kind of do this kind of promotion and building up hype prior to having a complete product, if you do you worry about, I guess, presenting a, a product that's not completely complete yet that might impact your brand, or I guess the um, uh, it might dilute the brand a bit if it's not the the end product that you are trying to put out. Did you ever worry about that while you're building the audience? Yeah, uh, well, I'll separate that into two parts then. I mean, first part being before launch, uh, we didn't really worry about that because uh, our product shots were of the result, um, and the result worked. So it was just, mm-hmm. we knew it worked. So we just took the shots of it, and um, you know, people could see exactly what they were getting in that respect. Uh, but post-launch, you know, we were still developing the product as, as, we, as we grew the company. So uh, we were always very clear to make people know that this was a new product, like this didn't exist before and we're brothers, you know, small, small business. We're just trying to get this off the ground and, and really figure it out. So, uh, there's customers that are like pretty loyal customers of ours who were there from the start. And, um, it's pretty cool to see, to see them still coming back and engaging with the brand because they were there at the start and they kind of grew with us as we de- defined the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that's important, that kind of clear line of communication and then the vulnerability and the honesty, putting yourself out there. I think people give you a lot of kind of runway when you don't have everything figured out yet. They like being able to see you kind of progress and essentially grow with you. And I think they can buy into your story a bit more when you're able to do that. And, you know, speaking of um, going through this process, you guys had launched on on a Kickstarter as well. So I think I'm looking at the stats here. So your initial goal was uh, 20000 Canadian dollars, ended up raising, breaking through that goal, ended up raising $275,000 from over almost 8,000 backers. Um, so amazing, you know, success there. Was this, when did this kind of come into play? Was this after you guys had launched or like before you launched? When did you guys launch the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, we launched it about five months after launching the initial product. Mm-hmm. And the goal of the Kickstarter for us was uh, we had that initial product. We knew we needed to iterate on it to build a more scalable version of the product. Uh, we worked with chemical engineers for that five-month time frame uh, and, and came to some conclusions that were very revealing, um, You know that we could, uh, in fact, make a, a very scalable product, uh, a much quicker application time, perfect tattoo almost every time, uh, just a much better product all around. Uh, and it was so vastly different from the original version of the product in terms of how it was applied, the manufacturing of it, uh, that we wanted a, a single place to give it hype and, and really build it up into something new. Uh, and what better place to do that than Kickstarter? I, everyone knows what Kickstarter is. Uh, you know, like, check us out. We're on Kickstarter. Like, that is such an easy thing to say to people mm-hmm. to get them to go try something out. 
And then um, going back to that concept of, you know, working with us to grow the company, that's exactly what Kickstarter is. So we kind of already had that story going into the Kickstarter, uh, which was, uh, which was good. So, so, you know, we, we knew we wanted to launch that product, uh, and we needed money to do so. And so we went with a Kickstarter. Mm, so you, you already had an existing product, but then through some research, you discovered that there are ways to improve it. And that's when you launched a Kickstarter. You use this Kickstarter to actually, uh, launch an improved version of an existing product. Yes. Very cool. So, um, you know, because you already had the store going, you already had the product out there. Uh, how did you, I guess, promote this? Like, what were some ways that you were able to, or I guess maybe what kind of preparation did you do prior to launching the Kickstarter campaign? Mm, preparation, made sure we did a really good video. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an accessory, it's a fashion item. It had to look great. Um, we were very fortunate to have a really awesome videographer make the video with us. You know, sorted out good models, um, different skin types, um, different looks, people that are beautiful but naturally, that kind of vibe. Uh, and then I think the main thing with the Kickstarter was just creating a schedule on getting everything ready and done uh, in terms of uh, you know, making sure your images are done here at this time, your video is done at this date, uh, you know, all the copies written by this time. Because uh, there's quite a lot that goes into a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, and if you really want to do well, it's got to be a pretty nice page. So uh, just make sure you give yourself a couple months to plan it if, if anyone else out there is thinking of doing a Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. It, when you mentioned you know, the, the video is key, and I've heard this um, plenty of times too, especially with Kickstarter, that that video is what was really going to capture people and get them to stick around to learn more about the product. What, what are some uh, things that you've learned that you definitely want to include in, let's say, a future Kickstarter campaign that you want to include in, that, in the video? Like, what are some things that you found to be very successful uh, to make sure that it was a high-converting uh, Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, I don't think one video gives me the authority to... <laughs> Um, say what should and should not be included in a video, but we did a bunch of research uh, before we launched the video and and the Kickstarter campaign. And uh, one of the main things was that pretty clear on what the value proposition is right away in the video within the first 30 seconds uh, because people would be turned off if not. Uh, obviously, make sure the quality is is high unless you're going for something kind of goofy that doesn't need high quality. So it really depends on the type of, type of product you have. Uh, and I think third would be to have the founders in it and speak directly to the camera. Uh, that really helps. And in my opinion, anything with a, with a person in it makes it feel very, uh, relatable. Um, and people are just more drawn to images that have a face in them. Um, so even just making that the still of a, of a girl's face, uh, with a tattoo on her hand in front of her face, the image we use across Kickstarter, uh, was, was kind of um, taken from that that train of thought. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. I think uh, a lot of times people spend a lot of too much time maybe presenting the product itself, but not the story and not the founders. I think a lot of times people will back a campaign because they you know fall in love with the the, the founder's story. Essentially, story is huge. Yeah, um, I, I, storytelling in general. I mean, we're storytelling creatures. That's how we survive for you know hundreds hundreds of thousands of years as humans and proto-humans was telling stories and, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a leopard that sits behind that rock every fall looking for prey. So don't go near it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, we're hardwired to, to listen to stories and love stories. So, um, we made sure we told a story in our video as well. 
Mm, yeah, for sure. So I, I think when it comes to working a videographer, uh, it's probably a path that other Kickstarter uh, campaign creators want to take as well. Anyone out there is listening that wants to do it. Uh, what What are some, I guess, tips on working with a videographer? Like, what kind of direction do you give? Like, what is that process like when you work with someone, a professional, to to create a Kickstarter video? Uh, the process for us, um, we we found them through another company. I think that's the easiest way. Find a someone in your city. Uh, whose brand you like or whose video you liked and just reach out to them and be like, hey, who's your videographer? It's exactly what we did. Uh, this cool brand called Vitaly here in Toronto, um, kind of uh, trailbra- trailblazing the men's jewelry um, trend right now. Uh, really, really cool videos, uh, like trend setting, which is really interesting. Uh, one of their videographers uh, we reached out to and uh, from there it was just a matter of storyboarding but loosely we're not actually drawing a storyboard we're kind of just writing down what we want to go in the video and the scenes are um and what we want to say and it was just one session of that and then you know set it up for filming we rented out uh i forget what it was called but it's there's spaces around most cities now that uh you can kind of they're just rentals like airbnbs essentially for filming and photo shoots uh and we Found one. It had lighting there already, which was nice. Uh, he brought his camera. Uh, he shot on a red, a 4K camera, which was nice for us. Because um, if you shoot on a 4K camera, which is nice about having a videographer, you don't actually need a photographer there. Um, if he takes enough footage, uh, you can actually take stills from the 4K footage, and they're, they're just beautiful images. So uh, we didn't even need to hire a photographer for our shoot. We just used the stills, which was great. <clears throat> mm, cool. Um, yeah. And that was really it. I mean, we paid him a couple thousand dollars for the video. Um, so expect to pay, like, for quality video, um, a couple grand. That makes, I mean, that, that sounds like a well-worthy investment, especially when it's such a uh, kind of, a, I guess, like a staple part of a Kickstarter campaign and uh, such a big impact on, on the success of Kickstarter campaign, especially when you're trying to raise this kind of money. So speaking of the money, so you raised $275,000 again. What, what did you do after you finished the campaign? Like, What did you need to spend this, this money on? Uh, we freaked out. Uh, <laughs> at first it was like freaking out in a good way. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then it was freaking out like, holy crap, how are we going to do this? Because we only set out to raise 20000 Yeah. Uh, and Kickstarter is a double-edged sword because I, I've already used double-edged sword. Is there another analogy? Um, <laughs> I can't think of it one. It is a, a double-edged uh, katana. There we go. <laughs> nice. one, I guess. But, uh, and it's a double-edged katana because on one hand, like, yeah, you want to raise as much money as possible. But on the other hand, if you raise too much, uh, you know, shit gets out of control because you didn't plan for this. Um, but it's great at the same time because you know, it gives you that uh, – validation that what you do is is something people want uh and that you do actually have something here so uh initially like right when we finished the campaign or even before obviously we set into motion uh working with suppliers and manufacturers that we've been talking to beforehand uh and then just developing the product i I think the one main thing that uh, we got wrong on our kickstarter campaign was not charging enough for shipping uh we got we got crushed on our shipping for Kickstarter. Uh, and we had been doing shipping before, too. It's just we hadn't shipped to all that many countries. Yeah. Uh, and, and shipping internationally can be kind of complex. So if you are doing a Kickstarter, I would get up, set up on Shippo first and just um, you know, play around with it and then go on USPS's website or any 
wherever you're shipping from's website, and, and you can usually find a, a parcel cost calculator and just take a bunch of countries from different uh, continents because people on Kickstarter buy from everywhere uh, and, and map out your pricing uh, and then how much to charge. So we charge a couple dollars less than we, we should have uh, for our, our shipping, and uh, it really, it really, uh, it really crushed us. <laughs> yeah, on, on Kickstarter, can you um, have variable pricing based on where shipping to, or do you have to build it, build it into the tiers? Uh, I actually don't recall. I think it was, at least from what I read, it was always best to do a flat rate mm-hmm. um, for either domestic or international. Um, so that's what we did, but we just set it a bit too low. Mm, makes sense. And that was based on tiers. So like a certain tier had free shipping and others didn't. Uh, okay. Yeah, so one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the pre-interview was about uh, influencer outreach was a, was a key for you. So tell us a little bit more about this. Like, What is the influencer outreach and how did you use it to market the business? Yeah, so this came after our Kickstarter. Our Kickstarter really blew up because of press. Uh, we had an insane amount of press. Um, we just kind of reached out to, to journalists ourselves, and they liked it, and they wrote about it, and that really helped boost our sales on Kickstarter. Uh, but after that, as, 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 we, as we were starting to actually grow without that press, uh, we've made use of influencers, uh, mostly just going around ourselves and kind of having a couple of our employees just skim through Instagram every day, finding influencers. I think the best thing is just to find someone whose style and vibe you like and then uh, hit that little arrow um, where it says follow and then you can see the suggested people to follow and then just go through all those people and then keep going through. We DM'd a bunch of people. Um, and, and and most, I guess, I don't know what you'd call them, but they're smaller influencers, anywhere from like... Micro-influencers, I think. Yeah, micro-influencers, that's a better term. Ten to, Anywhere from ten to 50,000 followers. Um, they usually don't care for getting paid like if it's a big brand like that comes to them they'll want to be paid but if it's a small company that's a cool product that's new that they can show their friends uh they'll usually take it free and then post about it if they want so uh we've done a ton of those um plus it gives you great photos uh to use on your own instagram and we use that as our product shop on our website too and that's kind of our main thing actually is uh, going back to that whole concept of this is a new product and how, how do we show people educate people on, on, on it being new. Um, I think product shots of influencers or micro influencers really help with that because, you know, these are people who we sent the product to and they wore it themselves. They put it on, um, they take great photos. Um, so they're already good photos, different skin types, different locations. Um, it just gives our, our website a, a really interesting feel. I find it looks like you're browsing through a Pinterest page. Uh, and for inspiration and then you can save things to your wish list and then Boom! You buy like three or four tattoos that you've seen other people on our our Instagram or our website wear. Mm. So when you do identify these influencers, what, what are you guys asking them? Like, are you just sending them free products, or are you are there any stipulations? I guess that are involved in this. How do you work with them? Uh, stipulations, pretty simple. Just use these hashtags. There's a couple hashtags we use. Uh, make sure to tag us if you like it. Uh, we don't. Make sure they, we don't force them to post. Um, it, we just send them a free kit. You know, it costs us, you know, not a lot of money to send them a free kit, and then they try it on. If they don't like it, they don't post about it, and if they do, they post about it. Um, so, try to estimate our success rate with that. It's probably like probably like eighty-five, ninety percent. Wow. People we send it to will will post about it in the end. Um, the few that don't, I have no idea why <laughs> why they don't, but. Uh, it's a definitely good ratio to work off of. Um, in terms of process, yeah, I mean, it's really it's easy as just sliding into their DMs. Just <laughs> hey, like 
what's up, love your style, here's what we do, check us out, let me know if you want a free kit, choose a couple designs, we'll send them to you. And that's how it works. Very cool. So you mentioned that a lot of your product photos actually come from these influencers. I think it's, it's again, I think it's a great way to to uh, to get photos and to get kind of these lifestyle photos. Actually, photos of the product being in use in the wild, and it looks much more organic. I think it helps people put put it in their minds a little better how this product will work. Uh, so, how do you get the rights to these photos? Do you have to, or do you have to ask, or do you have to get anything legally done to get the rights to the photos that people are, uh, you know, posting uh, or there's I guess pushing, putting out on their social media to take those photos and put them on your site as product photos. No, uh, with at least with micro influencers, um, with micro influencers, it's all about attention, right? I mean, it's an attention economy. They want more attention. Um, so we have a pretty big social following already, uh, and we have a lot of traffic to our website. So uh, we just tell them, hey, like we might use this as a product shot if that's okay. We'll tag you in the product shot on our website, like in the description, so people will go through and, and find you. And when we post about you on Insta, we'll tag you as well. Um, and we know our influencers get a lot of followers um, doing that. So it's kind of a, a win-win situation for both of us. Mm, okay, so as long as they're okay with it, and if they're not at some point, you can always just you know take, the, take it down. It's not, it's not like yeah. a big kind of legal to we've do. Actually never, we've never had one influencer request uh, a photo being taken down. I mean, we ask for permission, of course, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've never had any problems with it. Yeah, I mean, I think what you say makes makes a lot of sense, which is that it's uh, attention they're looking for, right? Uh, so if you are helping them with that, uh, that's kind of a lot of value in, in itself. And I think that that's, uh, I guess, a fair exchange for, for using their photos. Um, cool. So, so with all this, uh, you know, marketing, all the work that you've done, a successful Kickstarter campaign, can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today? Uh, yeah, I'll give you some high-level metrics. Uh, we're... Coming up on our two-year anniversary in February, um, and since doing the Kickstarter, we did two hundred seventy-five thousand, uh, and that helped us manufacture the initial product. Uh, and after that, we started building out our team. So there's fifteen of us now in the company. Uh, we have an office here in Toronto, and we're growing at about fifty percent month on month, uh, and you know, driving hundreds of thousands of people to our site on a monthly basis. So. Cool. Very awesome. So, what are the plans for the future? I mean, it sounds like you're building a 15-person team is not a you know not a typical size of the people to come on this podcast. Like you're building a legit team, legit sized team. What do you what do you, what are your plans for the next year or so? Uh, plans are really to focus on allowing customers to create their own tattoos. Um, so we've built out uh, a web app that allows them to do so, and we'll be launching that in a beta version very soon in the next couple of months. Uh, done some beta testing so far actually and it looks awesome people love it so uh you know really the goal with us is to allow anyone to wear a non-permanent tattoo um for a couple of weeks and up to a month and it's really all about self-expression skin deep and that's where our focus will lie in the upcoming years very cool. So thanks so much again for your time, Tyler. So inkbox.com is a site again, I-N-K-B-O-X.com. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, just check us out on Instagram, just at inkbox. That's our main social channel. So yeah, just check us out there and then check us out on, online. Cool. Yeah, we'll make sure to link all down in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for your time, Tyler. All right. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.